Before I get into my message today, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I mentioned it on social media, but uh, next week, next Sunday will be my last Sunday for three and a half months as I go on sabbatical. And so that's right. Uh, and uh, next Sunday, I'll be here next Sunday. I'll be preaching. Then we have our annual meeting and all that. And then next Sunday, in, a, in about seven days, about four hours, um, <laughs> my sabbatical starts, all right? 501. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, let's pray at the annual meeting. And then I'm out. While you're praying, I'm just I'm walking out. And so <laughs> where Rich go? I'm out. And so... Um, just as a heads up, we have a really wonderful three and a half months, I think, ahead of us, and I'll be sharing more of that next week, but um, uh, just as a reminder of, of that. But we are in a series called Encounters with Jesus, Life-Changing Stories from the Gospels, and we're going to focus on a passage of scripture that many of us are very familiar with. It's one of these um, stories that, whether you're a Christian or not, you know about it. This is a story of Jesus turning water into wine. And so John chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1, hear the word of the Lord. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for religious, uh, for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And, then, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you do it again? Turn the water of our ordinary human experience into the wine of your supernatural power. Open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to receive every gift of the Holy Spirit this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Over the course of my life, I have been at many, many weddings. I've been the groom. I've been the best man. I have pull the thing out so that the bride can walk on it, whatever that thing is. I have been an MC at receptions. I have uh, done so much. I know about weddings. I've officiated weddings. I know about weddings. And one of the things that I know about weddings is that something always goes wrong. 
something always goes wrong. You plan, you rehearse, you pray, and something goes wrong. It rains unexpectedly. People come extremely late. The bride doesn't show up. Tensions between family members. Something always goes wrong. Now, on our wedding day, January 28th, 2006, look at my hair. Look at just, uh, let's look at my hair for, let's just take a moment. Let's just take a moment. The happiest day of my life, and even on the happiest day of my life, certain things went wrong. For example, as the bridesmaids were coming down the aisle, we had planned a particular song for them to come down the aisle. But as they're coming down the aisle, the person who was over the music department for our wedding hit the wrong song. And as the bridesmaids are coming down, they're coming down to the wrong song. And already I'm upset. I'm already, I'm looking in the back, I'm just shaking my head, and I'm just ready to kill somebody in the back there. But that was the first thing that went wrong. We got married, and... um, after the wedding ceremony, we went outside, took some pictures and in front of the Rolls Royce that was going to be driving us around and all that there. And we got in our Rolls Royce, and we were going to take it from downtown Brooklyn to Weehawken, New Jersey. We had a cocktail hour uh, set up, but we decided, or our driver decided, to go through Chinatown on a Saturday afternoon. We didn't make the cocktail hour. In fact, nobody made the cocktail hour. All I could see was dollars just flowing out the window as I'm driving down with my Rolls Royce and all that. Beyond that there, our first honeymoon day, we got on a cruise. We got on Royal Caribbean, and and we were going to go to Curacao and Aruba and St. Martin and St. Thomas. And on the first day, we're on this cruise. And, and, and we're, we're, we're just happy to be married, and we're in our wonderful cabin with the, with the view outside, and I thought I heard someone knock on the door in the cabin. Rosie says, why don't you get the door? I said, I'm so happy. I ran to the, I got it, babe. I ran to the door, and I open it up. No one's there. I close it, and as I close it, the, the, the cabin pressure opens a cabinet that was right here and violently hits me in the eye. Three, four stitches required on the bottom of the ship. My wife sees me bleeding. She almost passes out. The whole rest of the honeymoon, there's a big Band-Aid on my eye. (laughs) Taking pictures, smiling with just a Band-Aid on my eye. We didn't get the pictures because someone on the third day stole our camera. And so, um, (laughs) this is what you call a crisis. Now, we're 13 years married. We've had a good time. Uh, We've taken a lot of pictures since then and all that. But the reality is often in weddings and in receptions and on honeymoons, things don't always go the way you thought and the way you planned. Sometimes a crisis hits. In our passage today, we're at a wedding. And at this wedding, there is a crisis. It's a social crisis, an emotional crisis a relational crisis, an economic crisis. Have you ever had a crisis in one of those areas of your life? 
Have you ever had a relational crisis, an economic crisis, a social crisis, an emotional crisis? If you've had a crisis, this passage is for you. And no matter what the crisis, no matter what the shortage, no matter what the problem, no matter what the area of disorientation, I want to just share with you a truth that I want to unpack for the rest of this sermon, and it is this. An encounter with Jesus can turn a crisis into a moment of transformation. Just an encounter with Jesus can turn a crisis into a moment of transformation. And this is where we come to our text. And as we come to this text, I want you to hold before God whatever crisis, whatever problem, whatever tension, whatever lack that's in your life right now, and we're going to see Jesus get to work. In John chapter 2, John is letting us know that there is a wedding and not only it's a, there's a wedding, it's the third day. Now, when John says the third day, he is referring to two things at once. Because John is a master storyteller, he knows how to weave in particular themes. He knows how to weave in particular insights. And on one level, to say that it's the third day is John simply saying that it is the third day of the wedding reception. Typical receptions in that Jewish time would be seven days long. John is saying it's the third day of the wedding ceremony. But anyone who is familiar with the story of Jesus and anyone who's familiar with the story of the gospel knows that the third day also speaks of the time when God moves. It speaks of the day when God brings life. It speaks of resurrection power. On the third day, Jesus arose from the dead. And John wants us to know, even though this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that there's a third day on this day. Just as Jesus is getting started, we're going to see something of the resurrection power of God at work. And this tells me that when it comes to Jesus, if Jesus is around, the third day can be any day. It could be Monday, and it's the third day. It could be Tuesday, and it's the third day. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it doesn't matter. Don't you, aren't you happy that God doesn't just work on Sundays? Because any day, if Jesus is around, can be the third day. The moment of resurrection, at any moment, God can break through in your life and give you what you've been waiting for. Offer healing and restoration and renewal and resurrection. Any day can be the third day. And this is what John is getting at here. Because Jesus is around, this is just more than just a third day of a ceremony. This is the third day of God's activity in the world. And so Jesus is at this wedding on the third day. And I love that Jesus is at a wedding. It reminds us, it's a good question to have, a good question to reflect on is, is what's the image of Jesus that you have in your mind? Usually when Jesus is depicted by artists, he's he's seen in reflective, stoic, very serious ways. But the Jesus that we see in Scripture is not just one who likes to pray. The Jesus we see in Scripture is one who likes to party. Jesus doesn't just like to pray, Jesus likes to party. So much so, if you look at the Bible, one of the things that they said about Jesus, which causes you to give some pause to is they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, he, Jesus likes to pray, and Jesus likes to party. Now, Jesus is here at this wedding, 
It's a wedding celebration. Scholars say there's probably about 100 people who are at this celebration from the neighborhood. He's there. His disciples are there. His mother is there. And then a crisis hits. Now, as I mentioned, the Jewish ceremonies are about seven days long. And the ceremony, in terms of the wine and the food, the person or the couple responsible for feeding all these people was the bride and the groom. They were responsible for feeding them and and giving them drink. And not just a three-hour wedding reception for seven days. They had to feed these people. And on the third day, the wine runs out. This is a crisis. A social crisis. A cultural crisis. An emotional crisis. A family crisis. Now, I don't know who was responsible for this. I don't know if they had a wedding planner and the wedding planner didn't follow through. I don't know if they were supposed to get a delivery, but the wine didn't arrive in time. I don't know what happened. All I know is that the wine runs out. This is a crisis. This is an embarrassing moment. Imagine with me if you're at a wedding and, and, and the food runs out. The cake runs out. You're, you're halfway through the electric slide and the music runs out. I mean, this is a crisis. For my Puerto Rican family, this is a crisis. (laughs) When the music runs out, this is a problem. And this serves as a metaphor for life because wine is a picture of celebration. Wine is a picture of abundance. Wine is a picture of joy. But the reality of life is this. From time to time, the wine runs out. The reality of life is there is great joy that comes our way, but joy runs out from time to time. There are moments of celebration, and then there are moments when that celebration runs out. And this is what we know. The the, the relationships that we once were characterized as delightful, sometimes the wine runs out. The environments that were once marked by celebration, sometimes the wine runs out. You and I know that from time to time, the wine runs out. The wine of our health runs out. As you age, the wine of feeling that you're in control runs out. The wine of success runs out. The wine of strength runs out. The the, the wine of politics in our country running out. For some of you, you're married. It feels like the wine of your marriage is running out. There was once joy. There was once life. There was once abundance. For some of you, emotionally, there was once a time where you had lots of joy, but the joy has been replaced by despair and depression. It feels like the wine is running out. Here's the question for you. Where in your life right at this moment is the wine running out? Where is there a shortage? Where is there a problem? Where is there lack? Where is there disorientation? Where right now is the wine running out in your life? Can you name it for a moment and just hold it before God? And as you hold that before God, all of us, we come Sunday to Sunday, and in some weeks we have good weeks, and then some weeks we have bad weeks. Some weeks it feels like the wine is flowing, and some weeks it feels like there is a shortage. But where is the wine running out in your life. Moreover, how do you respond when the wine runs out? In this moment, we see a good response from Mary, the mother of Jesus. The wine runs out, and in this moment of social, cultural embarrassment, Mary comes up to Jesus and says, son, there's no more wine. Now, the question I've been wrestling with throughout the course of studying this passage is what exactly 
is Mary saying at this moment? Is she just externally processing? Maybe she's an external processor. She just, she notices something. She has to get it out. And she's just saying, the the wine ran out. Maybe she's experiencing a kind of secondhand embarrassment. And she pulls Jesus to the side and says, can you believe this? The wine ran out. This is awful. Or maybe she is telling Jesus to get to work. This is her way indirectly of telling Jesus to get to work. Son, there's no more wine. Now, if Mary told me there's no more wine, uh, I'm saying, that's a problem. Let's get out of here. There's another wedding down the block. Uh, They have wine over there. Let's head over there. I won't necessarily do anything about it, but I don't know the relationship that Jesus had with his mother. I don't know the communication dynamics and such. I don't know that when she said there's no more wine, that was probably code for Jesus. You should do something about it. I don't know the relationship that Jesus had with his mother, but I know the relationship that I have with my wife, which is to say that when Rosie says something like, the garbage is full. She's not just externally processing at that moment. When she says the garbage is is full, she is giving instructions. Because I'm the director of sanitation in our home. I don't know what your title is. But I'm the director of sanitation in my house. Which means I take the garbage out. And so when Rosie says the garbage is full, I don't say that's a problem and keep playing my video games. I I know that when she says the garbage is full, that means get to work, brother. Take it out. And after you take it out, put another bag in. Amen. Amen. Yes, Lord. I feel that word. Amen. (laughs) The sisters are like, praise the Lord. Somebody, oh, I feel it. I feel the spirit moving now. Okay. And so maybe Mary is telling Jesus, get to work. And and I wonder why she says this. Perhaps Mary knows something about Jesus, and maybe he's done something in the past. Now, remember, she was there when the angel said, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. She was obviously there when she gave birth. She was there when the wise men came. She knows who he is. And from time to time, I wonder, what was Jesus like when he was five years old? What was Jesus like when he was seven and eight? Did Jesus ever do some miracles just for fun? Like, like, did he ever, like, multiply bread and fish at home? Rice and beans at home? When the food ran out of the fridge, it married, did Mary say, son, we don't have any food and I don't have any money for groceries. Can you, can you just do what you do? And he stood in front of the fridge. He said, all right, ma. And he, and he said, amen. And all of a sudden, there was like milk and eggs and chicken. I don't know. But I imagine that Mary knows who he is, knows his capabilities, knows what he can do. And she says, son, whatever you did, can you, can you do it again? And so Mary says, son, there is no more wine. And Jesus responds in verse 4 in a very curious way. He says, woman, what concern is that to me? Now, wait a second. The challenge with the Bible is we don't hear tone. We don't hear volume. And so we have to come to our own conclusions 
about what Jesus said. But I imagine there's a couple of ways that he could have said it. Some of us probably hear that in kind of angry tones. Woman, what does that got to do with me? Or maybe he said it in a kind of exasperated way. Maybe Mary is always saying, saying, Mom, woman, again, you're asking me. Maybe he said it that way. Maybe he said it very tenderly. I said, Ma, I, I mean, I would love to do something, but it's just not my time. I, I don't know how he responded. Although when he says woman later on while he's on the cross, he says woman again, but in a very tender way. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. As he's speaking to Mary and John. We don't know the tone, but we do know that after Mary says, can you do something about it effectively? Jesus says, it's not my time. And then Mary says these words, do whatever he tells you. She walks to the service. She says, Jesus is no more wine. He says, what does that have to do with me? She walks to the service and says, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> now, in these five words right here, we have the essence of the Christian life. Right here. Do whatever he tells you. What does it mean to be a Christian? Do whatever he tells you. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Do whatever he tells you. This is someone who, this is what it means to be a follower of God, to do whatever Jesus tells you. And so in verse 7, Jesus says to the servants to fill six water jars with water, and it says, so they filled them. This is obedience right here. They filled it. And then he said, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. And we don't know how it happened, but from the time the water was poured to the time it was poured out and the master of the banquet gets his cup, the water has been transformed into wine, the best tasting wine. And it is so good that the master of the banquet can't believe it. The master of the banquet says, usually everyone brings out the best wine first. And then the cheap wine when everyone is too lit to know the difference. That's what it says in my translation right there. <laughs> Whenever everyone is too lit, okay, too drunk to discern the difference, they bring out the cheap wine later. But you have brought the best wine and saved it to the end. Now, when the master of the banquet says that, he's probably saying it because of two things. The first thing is he's just overwhelmed with this is abundance. This is, this is wonderful. Or he's blown away by how wasteful this seems. Why would you waste the best wine on people who cannot really appreciate it? Because they're already so drunk. <laughs> Why would you waste wine on people who cannot really appreciate it? And the answer is very simple, because this is what God is like. God's goodness is abundant. His grace is abundant. And his goodness is not based on your goodness. Amen. Oh, isn't that wonderful? His goodness is not based on your goodness. That, that's how we operate. That's how you mean, I'm good to you if you're good to me. But God doesn't operate that way. This is the sheer grace of God. God's goodness is not contingent on our goodness. God's goodness is contingent on God's goodness. 
And so Jesus pours out this wine, pours out abundance, and it shows us how generous God is. Generous with love, generous with mercy, generous with grace, generous with his provision. You never have to worry about God being stingy with you, stingy with his love, stingy with his grace. The song we just sang, God is madly in love with you. And God longs to pour out grace after grace, mercy after mercy, forgiveness after forgiveness, and not just a little bit. It's not just that the wine tastes good and he gave a little, a little bit for everyone so someone can just take a little sip. He provides so much wine. And let me show you how much wine he provides. It says there are six jars which, which have 20 to 30 gallons each. Which if I do my math, there's 120 to 180 gallons of water, gallons of wine now for a small wedding party. He doesn't make enough so that everyone can have just a little sip. He makes what would be the equivalent of 700 to 800 bottles of wine for a party of 100 people. Get that image for a second. This is the abundance of God. 700 to 800 bottles of wine for a party of 100 people. That's abundance. That's the way God blesses. That's the way his love comes out. The other day, I went to my mother-in-law's house. We were having a meal. It was just me, Rosie, Nathan, Karis. We were going to be with my, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, and I walked in. And as I walked in, the, 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 the smell of Puerto Rican cuisine was just like just off the charts. And, and, and I walk in, and, and I saw soup, and I saw chicken, and I saw rice and beans, and tostones, and pernil. And, and I'm, like, I'm like, it's not Thanksgiving, is it? And, 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 I, and I walk in, and I say, who else is joining? us. And they said, no, it's just us. I, I said, just us. They said, no, it, it's just us. And, and I thought about John too. This is how God blesses with this extra. I took some home. I had some Tupperware. Where's the Tupperware? I brought the Tupperware. I had food for Monday and for Tuesday and for Wednesday. That's how God blesses. There's more than enough. Amen. There's more than enough. There's abundance. That's how God blesses. God's not stingy. There's abundance. And God provides. Now, when I look at this story, I see the grace of God at work. I see the power of God at work. I see the love of God at work. And it reminds me of a couple of truths out of this passage. Namely, number one, that there's no situation that Jesus is not interested in helping us with. He's interested in it all. I, what I love about this miracle, this is the first miracle of Jesus. And I love that the first miracle happened at a wedding. It, it, it blows our categories for how God moves. Because we would typically think that the first miracle that Jesus would do would be giving sight to the blind. Or giving hearing to the deaf. Or raising someone from the dead. But his first miracle is at a party for a group of people that are already drunk. <laughs> Just let that sink in with you for a moment. Moreover, I love that Jesus is so generous. He doesn't say, Ma, I got to save this power. Lazarus is going to die in a few weeks. I'm going to need all the strength I can get to, to raise him back up. He doesn't say, I, I got blind Bartimaeus on my calendar. I know he's going to come. There's a leper that's going to see me. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus is so generous and so powerful. 
And his first miracle is at a wedding, something that would seem inconsequential, something that would seem so small, so unnecessary, but Jesus pours out abundance. You know what? We often think that God is, there's situations that are too big for God to move on with. We often also think that there's some situations that are too small that God cares about. And I want to tell you, there's no situation that's too small that God doesn't care about. This is why we pray without ceasing for the big things and the little things. Because God is infinitely longing to participate and be involved in every aspect of your life. There's no area in your life where Jesus is not interested in helping us with. Secondly, we see in this passage that Jesus can take the worst situation and turn it into the best situation. He can take the very worst of a situation and transform it into the very best. This is why we gather together as the people of God every Sunday to sing songs, to be reminded, to hear the gospel preached, that our wine runs out, we run out of hope. God, can you transform this situation in my life? Can you transform my marriage? Can you transform my emotional health? Can you transform my life? And the answer is, yes, he can. He can transform it into the very best. But here's what I want to show you. The transformation that we often long for is often contingent on our participation. And I'll say it this way, transformation requires our participation. And we see this right in this story. There's no seeing it any other way. He's, I want to go back to Mary's word. She says, do whatever he tells you, and then the servants come to fill these jars with water. Now, this is not a quick task. I want to tell you something. There were, they did not have the technology that we have. You get a long hose. You, you're in the backyard. You just turn on the water, and you start filling the pots. They didn't have that kind of technology. So I imagine they would have to find a well and fill whatever the container they had and then go back to the water pots and pour it and then go back, fill it again, walk back, pour it again. Each water pot, again, 20 to 30 gallons, six of them. This is a lot of work, tiresome work, slow work, ordinary work. Fill it up again, put it in the container, and Jesus says when they were all filled to the brim, in other words, when they have already done the slow, ordinary, methodical, tiresome work, then at that moment, the water turns in to wine. Dallas Willett said it this way, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. All that to say, many of us, we want new wine just like that. We want, we want just new wine to show up out of nowhere. And sometimes God moves in great power and transforms us. But more often than not, Jesus wants us to participate in our own transformation. 
And that transformation is often very slow and ordinary and tiresome. Let me get very plain for us. For some of you in marriage, you're, you're, the water, the wine has run out. And, 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 you, and you want an overnight FedEx miracle, just like that there. And Jesus says, well, yeah, well, be, be, before I turn this water into wine, fill the pot. And filling the pot often means the slow, tiresome work. You want your marriage to turn into water, into wine? Jesus' word is probably, well, do the tiresome work of going to couples therapy. Five, six, seven times. You're putting water in the pot. Some of you, you have addictive behaviors and, and you're asking, why hasn't God just, just, just healed me just like that? Because Jesus often wants us to participate in our own transformation. And so he says, I'll, I'll transfer. But, but first, I want you to go to that AA meeting. I want you to go to that NA meeting. I want you to be a part of a small group. I want you to confess your sins. And as you do that, a little bit of more water goes in the pot. You say, Lord, why? you're spiritually dry. And, and, G, and Lord, why don't you just zap me and just fill me with your life? And certainly Jesus can do that. But sometimes he says, why don't you take some time to be reflective in prayer? And as they're sitting down in silence and in solitude, opening the Bible and doing that hard, ordinary work, you're putting a little bit more water in the pot. And as you are doing these things in ways that we cannot even understand, in very surprising, mysterious ways, we are participating with God in our own transformation. And all of a sudden, the water that we've been pouring in turns into wine. We want transformation overnight. And Jesus says, I want you to participate in your own transformation, partnering with me to see your life transformed. And every time we pray, every time we open scripture, every time we go to a small group, every time we worship together, every time we take communion, every time we receive prayer, every time we do the little ordinary things, we're putting a little bit more water in the jar. And we're positioning ourselves for that water to be turned into wine. Now, this story is a sign. And I want to end with this here. This story is a sign. In, in the Gospel of John, John is the only gospel writer that uses a language of signs. This is the first of seven signs. And a sign is something that points to a different reality, another reality, something that is to come. And it says this is the first sign of Jesus where he glorified himself and all that there. And I want you to see that the point of this story is not that Jesus knows how to keep a party going. That's not the point of this story. The point of the story is not that Jesus knows how to do some serious miracles and all that. The point of the story is to point to another reality. That there comes a day three years later after this wedding ceremony where Jesus would die on a cross and it seemed to everyone around him, to his disciples and to the world that the wine had run out. But on the third day, the real third day, the third day the world is really waiting for. Jesus gets up with power and the wine starts flowing again. 
the wine of his salvation starts flowing again. The wine of his joy starts flowing again. The wine of his healing starts flowing again. The wine of his power starts flowing again. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, his wine keeps flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. And this is what Jesus says, all it takes is a sip. A sip of my wine can transform your very life. Doesn't the Bible say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good? Just a sip of Jesus' wine can transform you. And this is along the lines of what we've been talking about in previous weeks. Just the crumb can satisfy you. A seed, just a seed, just a word, and just a sip of Jesus' wine can satisfy you. The reality of our lives is this. The wine runs out, and the other reality is we drink the wrong wine. The wine has run out, and we think, well, I got to go someplace else to satisfy the longings of my soul. But there's only one wine and one wine giver who can satisfy the longings of your soul, and it is Jesus Christ. Money will never satisfy the longings of your soul. Another degree will never satisfy the longings of your soul. Another sexual experience will never satisfy the longings of your soul. Another job, another house, another car will not satisfy the longings of your soul. Another title, another relationship will not satisfy the longings of your soul. But just a sip of Jesus' wine will satisfy the very longings of your soul. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Just a sip. It's all it takes to encounter the power of God to transform any crisis into a moment of transformation. For some of you in this, in this room, those watching online, the wine is running out, and maybe it's all out. The joy that you once had has been totally replaced with depression. The abundance you once had has been totally replaced with poverty. The delight you had in relationships has been turned into desolation and frustration. The wine has run out. And yet the invitation Jesus offers us is, trust me, come to me, or as Mary says, do whatever he tells you. Where's the wine running out? Maybe you're single and you've been just waiting for God to bring someone your way and you're about to give up because the wine is running out. And you're about to do things and now in your timetable and start to manipulate and push forward in ways that you know are crossing a line. Maybe you've been married for a number of years and every week you wonder, when is the wine going to flow again? The wine of passion, the wine of intimacy, the wine of connection, the wine of love. When is it going to flow again? Some of you out of work 
and you're wondering, when is the wine of just paying bills going to flow again? The ordinary things. We come here to be gathered as the people of God, to be reminded that God is a God who provides. And it's often that when we're doing the ordinary, slow work, and we're doing it in community, that God surprises us. Jesus, thank you for your people. Thank you for this moment. And Lord, wherever wine is running out in our lives, would you be so gracious as to pour out new wine, new hope, new joy, new peace, new love. And may we be filled to overflow. We sing to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let's all stand. Let's sing together. Jesus, our redemption, our salvation is in his blood. Jesus, light of heaven, friend forever, his kingdom come. Don't let your heart be
Amen. Let's have our prayer team come to my left. Those who are going to offer the bread and the cup to come to my right. And what I love about the story is this story is a foretaste of the poured out blood of Jesus Christ, but it's also a foretaste of what's to come at the end of history when Jesus fully and finally reigns. You see, the Bible, one of the themes of the Bible is the theme of a marriage and a wedding. The Bible begins with a wedding, a marriage with Adam and Eve. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, God is known as a groom. His, Israel is his spouse. When Jesus comes on the scene, his first miracle was at a wedding. He's known as the bridegroom. At the middle of the Bible, there is a song, a, a book called the Song of Songs, which is a, a book of, of sensual intimacy between a husband and wife. At the end of human history, at the end of the book of Revelation, the Bible ends with a wedding ceremony where heaven and earth are joined together once more as God fully and finally reigns. In other words, we're headed to a wedding ceremony when God will join his creation again in fullness. And so today we get a taste of what's to come. And those who are privileged to get a sip of what's to come are those who have tasted the wine of Jesus' salvation. For some of you today, you came into church, you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never welcomed him to live in you, to forgive you of your sins, to follow him. You've never said something along the lines of Jesus, forgive me, save me, rescue me. I want to follow you. I want to taste your wine. You've never done that. And if you've never done that and there's something coming alive in you, I want to tell you that's God speaking to you. Maybe you've come to new life, but you've never come to Jesus. And the invitation is taste and see that the Lord is good. If you've never made a decision like that, our prayer team is here. We'd love to pray for you. Or maybe you've been following Jesus or you've said to, yes to Jesus at one point, but the wine has run out and you find yourself drinking different wines, drinking from other sources thinking, oh, oh, this will satisfy me. And you realize, nope, that wine always runs out to you. And there's new wine for you that comes at the hands of Jesus. And so our prayer team is here. We have our sister Yofana here who will offer the bread and the cup. But we take bread, we dip it in the cup. We are reminded of God's love for us being poured out in the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, for the salvation of our lives, for the renewal of all creation. And so whether you come for prayer, whether you come to take bread and dip it in a cup, as Mary says, do whatever he tells you. And may that be our verse for the week as a church. 
May that be our verse. Do whatever he tells you. And may we sit in silence enough to hear Jesus speaking to us. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. If you're new to our congregation, we end every gathering in this posture. It's a posture of receiving. We position ourselves for the abundance of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, out of which we give to the world. And so with your hands in your hearts, in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, drinking the wine that never runs out, the wine of Jesus' love, the wine of his mercy, the wine of his salvation. And may you drink deeply of that wine. And may you overflow to bless the world around you. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the abundant name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Grace and peace to you all.